0: This is It Was a Thing on TV. Total
1: Red Man has ever done something like this to me! It's a... Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I give you... The Dregs of
2: Humanity! Episode 250. Submissions 1741 and 1742. Genesis 2 slash Planet Earth. Genesis 2 and Planet Earth were a series of unsold pilots produced by Gene Roddenberry. Genesis 2 aired on CBS on March 23rd, 1973, and Planet Earth aired on April 23rd,
0: 1974.
1: This is the 22nd century, the land renewed, the air and water pure again. The conflicts of the past are gone. It is a new earth, new peoples and new customs. In some places, bizarre savagery. In others, advanced cities. Everywhere, new challenge and new adventure. And this is also the story of Dylan Hunt, lost in 1979 in a suspended animation accident over a century and a half later in the year 2133, he was found and awakened by the people of this city called Pax, peace. The one place on earth which escaped the final conflict of the 20th century. The one place on earth where civilization did not perish. Dylan Hunt is one of them now, leader of a Pax science team, exploring a much changed world. Part of the Pax dream of rebuilding on earth a new and wiser civilization. Their mission is mankind, rebirth of planet Earth.
2: Well, guys, Gene Roddenberry is one of the all-time legends of television.
3: In a word, genius. He took his knowledge of military history, his knowledge of television know-how, and the imagination of the space age, and turned it into one of the greatest franchises in all of pop culture. That, of course, being... Star Trek.
2: Which, of course, is still airing in one form or another nearly
3: 60 years later. Mm-hmm. They just he, dropped the uh, second season, season of, of Picard, yeah. Second season of Picard on Paramount Plus. And yep. Strange New Worlds later
2: this year. Yep. Can't wait for that. But in the period between 1969 when Star Trek got canceled by NBC. And until 1987, when Star Trek The Next Generation premiered in syndication. Well, what was Gene
3: Roddenberry to do? He wasn't doing much in the way of anything, and he found himself missing work. So, in his off hours during the late 60s, early 70s, he put together a few story ideas. And one of those story ideas was... An idea about a man, instead of being displaced from space, like in Star Trek, he was displaced from time.
0: Ooh. Now, wait a second. You said that really Gene Roddenberry didn't have much going on in the uh, early 70s? In the early 70s. We talked about Star Trek the Animated Series not that long ago. I I think it was during the... uh, Oh, gosh, I can't say it. The Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show. And remember, that Star Trek animated series debuted September uh, of 73. So that's only six months after the first of these movies. So he was busy, if you will.
2: But how much involvement did he
3: have in the animated series, really?
0: Well, it was created by him, so...
3: Well, the, 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 it was, it, I think he had about as much involvement in the animated series as Steven Spielberg had in Animaniacs.
0: Or Tiny Toons.
3: Or Tiny Toons.
0: So basically, you're just saying a name.
3: It's like, I'm going to give you name, image, and likeness, and you're going to give me a check every week.
0: Well, he was an executive producer on the show, so that makes it sound like he's doing more than just catching a paycheck.
2: Maybe he had some ideas left over from the original series that he never got, and maybe some of those got onto the show. I don't know.
0: My point is, he did have stuff going on in the early 70s. But
2: not to the degree of a show like Star Trek, the live-action series.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, not to the extent of, say, uh, Next Generation, but that would be, like, almost 15 years later at this point.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, a year before the animated series, uh, Gene Roddenberry and his wife, the lovely and vivacious Madgell Barrett, were on vacation in the Bahamas in the summer of 72, and he decided, you know what I miss? Creating stuff. So, over the course of six weeks, he fleshed out this story about... A man who is displaced from time through circumstance and the miracle of science. Futuristic science. We hear the story of Dylan Hunt. Wait. Not that Dylan Hunt. Wait, you mean this doesn't involve Kevin Sorbo? This does not involve Kevin Sorbo. However, there would take some story ideas and the name and create Andromeda around Kevin Sorbo. But this is like 25 years before that. Okay. Yeah, this is a man whose life truly begins on the day he dies. And it's all fleshed out in the opening sequence of the pilot. He has by now in the futuristic world of 1979, developed a method of preserving astronauts during interstellar space travel. Using intense pressures and temperature fluctuations, he is able to create a stasis room deep in the caverns of Carlsbad Caverns underneath New Mexico in a NASA test lab. He's managed to test it successfully on animals. And as soon as he's cleared for human tests, he volunteers himself to be a test subject. And so, he enters the chamber, and supposedly only going to be there for a week, maybe two. Turns out he is revived, after 134 years. Hmm. If, my math is cor- if my math is correct. And what else can we say? I mean, supposedly after he's revived, he goes on new adventures involving what remains of humanity as they fight against a breed of mutants who are faster smarter, stronger, and with more hearts and belly buttons. And that's basically the genesis of Genesis 2.
2: Okay, so who do we have in Genesis 2? Well, in Genesis
3: 2, we have Dylan Hunt played by somebody we didn't... I don't know if we discussed him on this show, but I know he's a... He played a a role in at least 80s babies growing up.
2: One, Alex Cord. We did talk about him because we talked about him in Wild
3: West Showdown. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. He hosted Wild West Showdown.
2: That's right.
3: In character.
2: In character. He's a character actor after all. But yeah, everyone would know him best from Airwolf. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And the second to last week of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour.
2: Oh, yeah. He was on the next to last week.
0: Did this has ha-
3: been your Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour reference. Did he have the 30, Mike?
0: I think he did.
3: Oh, okay,
1: good. All right. Now, uh, what do you say we reveal the... Big number here, which celebrities who just grab your Good tab, idea bang, ready, set,
3: go, yank who your tabs.
1: It?
2: And we're, oh, it's Alex, it. Alex Ford anyway. had it today.
3: Alex. And he was supposed to be like the only person credited as main cast. Everybody else was either an also starring or a special guest. Like, um, also starring Percy Rodriguez as Primus Kimbridge, a Primus in the world of Genesis 2 is sort of an elder, a leader, if you will. And Percy Rodriguez, he was all over the place in the 70s and 80s. He played Ned Harper on four episodes of Benson. Ooh, wow. Yep. We actually talked about him earlier on 13 episodes of Sanford during the Sanford verse episodes we did.
2: Okay, so second appearance of him.
3: And of course, we can't talk about Percy Rodriguez and not bring up his job as narrator of Captain EO and his voicing 13 episodes of Foofer. We can't do it.
2: But he did play uh, the character of Commodore Stone in a season one
3: episode of Star Trek, the episode Mm. Court
2: Martial back in 1967.
3: Uh, Other also-starrings is Ted Cassidy, who played Isaiah in this movie. And, of course, Ted Cassidy, you would know him best as Lurch. Darn right. You rang. Other also-starrings include Harvey Jason as Sing, and Harvey Jason played Scudder in Batman, and his last role is um, his last role was in a couple of Star Wars video games, believe it or not.
2: Oh, as the Empire transport ship captain in
3: Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds on yep. the PC. Yep, he was also in future entries: The Wizard, You Again, Laser Tag Academy, Holy Square, and. Bring him back alive. I don't know if we have the uh,
2: 1986 Wizard on the list. I don't think we do. I might have to put it on.
3: You might have to. And he was also in, I want to say it was a season two episode of TNG. Let me take a look here. The Big Goodbye. Oh, sorry. It was a season. No, it was a season one episode. My mistake. So already we have two Star Trek connections, not counting Gene Roddenberry. Playing the role of Primus Yuloth is Titos Vandis from the movie Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. I just wanted to make mention of that. Sadly, no longer with us. He died in 2003. Oh, but he was in the movie Fletch Lives. Yes, he was. He was in Fletch Lives. And he played three different characters during the six year run of Barney Miller. Okay. And he was in one episode of Future Entry, The Quest. The not not the, the role play, not the live action role playing game, the the I wanna be an heir to a country. Oh, that,
2: that's the Stephen Cannell show?
3: Yeah. Okay. But Oh, and, we have the female lead. Oh, wait a minute. We're getting to the female lead in a moment, but I have to bring up one more Primus, and that's Primus Dominic, played oh. by the yes. one, the only, metal Barrett. That's right. Because if you're a Gene Rodberry production, you catch your woman inside of it you, somehow. Yeah, you have to catch your wife in the movie. But let's talk about the special guest star, AKA the female lead, if we will. Because playing the role of Lyra Ah, who is an undercover mutant who revived and took care of Dylan Hunt, is the lovely and vivacious Marriott Hartley from future entry Goodnight Bean Town. And one of the first times we see Lyra Ah is. During a scene where she reveals herself to be a mutant, how does she do it? By taking her top off. Woo-hoo! And revealing two belly buttons. There is a reason why Gene Roddenberry wrote all of the mutants, or Terradians in this parlance, to have two belly buttons. and has to do with NBC standards and practices, while he was running Star Trek. During this time on NBC. Belly buttons on television. Were taboo. Can't have it. Can't have it accidentally. Can't have it on purpose. No. Absolutely not. So he determined. You know what? For every belly button I did not get to show on Star Trek. I'm going to show Two on Genesis two.
0: Mike, you have a response. Yeah, I have a a comment. Laughing was on NBC at this time. Didn't Goldie Hawn wear bikinis showing her belly button off quite a bit? Yes. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Maybe they hated Gene. I don't know.
0: Yeah, what's with that,
2: huh? But one thing I want to mention about Marriott Hortley, she was actually on the original series of Star Trek. She appeared as the character Zerabeth in the season three episode, All Are Yesterdays. Yep, this is true. So this is basically Gene Roddenberry getting a bunch of people that probably he knows or have guest starred on Star Trek in the past to be in this pilot. So
3: Basically. But okay. yeah, it's like all of Gene Rodberry's best friends and or relations in this pilot about a guy who's found himself 130 some odd years in the future.
0: Before we start talking about the pilot itself, there's one more name I want to add. And this is actually this person's first role. According to IMDB playing an uncredited TV actress was DD Khan. And Didi Khan is most famous for playing Frenchie in Greece and Greece 2. She was also on Benson, Shining Time Station. She's done it like all over the last 50 years. And Didi Khan was only about 21 when this was recorded.
3: The main gist of the pilot itself was okay, here's Dylan Hunt. He's just been revived after surviving 130 some odd years. And now he's introduced to this, sorry bands of this Huxley, Brave New World, where it is after a great conflict, a war to end all wars, if you will. Humanity has retreated underground, while well, the vestiges of humanity has retreated underground. One such group is called themselves Pax, which is, of course, the Latin term for peace. They have sworn off any and all aggression and war and want people who join up with them to do the same. Which, I guess, puts them at odds with the Above Dwellers, which is now a collection of mutants who are, like I said, Faster, stronger, smarter, and with more, uh, I guess, what we said during Wonder Woman last week
2: blessings. Blessings, yes.
3: <laughs> and any humans they do find above ground, they keep as either slaves or pets. Suffice it to say, life as a human in 2133, no bueno. So the folks at PAX, they have retreated underground, presumably in Carlsbad Caverns, where the NASA test lab was that Dylan Hunt was found in. And they've made themselves a little bit of a little bit of a civilization there. They've spent their entire lives, they've they devoted their entire lives to collecting artifacts and historical documents about the world before the Great Conflict. Nobody knows why, except well, the expansion of human knowledge, which Gene Roddenberry has been really, really good at exploring. It's like part of the Gene Rodberry mystique is it's about the journey and it's about the collection of knowledge along the way in the journey. So suffice it to say, they want to keep this knowledge and they also want to sort of spread it all over the world as it exists in 2133. But they have to watch their backs from the uh, Turidians Who, if they capture a human, they're going to enslave it. Life in 2133, if you're a human, it's very beautiful. But if you go above ground... Oh, you're screwed. You
2: are screwed, dude. You're done. Nope. Done. Done. Don't even try it. No, don't. Don't. Just like Gordon Chump in the bike shop, just stay the hell away from going above
3: Stay the hell. Do not go to the surface. No. If this
0: is a video podcast, this is where we have Jack Nicholson. No, 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 no,
3: no. And Tracy Morgan going, no, 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 hell no, no.
2: That's the only good thing from the movie, Cop Out.
3: Yeah. We're going to make this a very brief summary for reasons that will become painfully obvious in a moment. All right. Let's fast forward to the futuristic world of 1979, where Dylan Hunt has volunteered himself for his own project, Project Ganymede, which is a suspended animation chamber for astronauts on long-duration space flights. He is going into his first test for what is supposed to be a few days. A week at most. They pressurize the chamber. They monitor his uh, vitals. And the one thing that they told him about the test lab in Carlsbad Caverns, it is directly... Below a portion of Earth that, if jostled even the slightest bit, will dislodge and bury the lab. You are NASA scientists. Why do you even go there? It's like, what would possess you? I understand that the conditions right there are perfect. Except for that one bit of rock that if the slightest jostle loosens it, it'll crush the lab. I understand that. But I'm sure you can find another place to put your lab. Yeah, you could just find another place besides this place. Why would you put it there? The lab is not exactly perfect if it can be buried by the slightest tremor. Which, uh
2: uh-oh. Uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, that happens.
3: Yeah. As soon as they start on the test, an earthquake. The techs bolt out of there, seemingly leaving Dylan Hunt for dead. They don't even bother to see if he's okay. I'm sure they could have depressurized the chamber really quickly and get Dylan out of there. The worst thing that could happen is a bad case of the Benz. Google it.
2: Okay, so now he's awakened in 2133. He's found out about what's happened, how civilization's now destroyed. So, And now he's been rescued by the group that calls himself PAX.
3: Yes, they found him in the chamber. They had to depressurize the chamber. Because remember, the chamber is still pressurized. He is still... As he was in 1979. So they have to depressurize the chamber before they can open the door and bring him back too. And even then, it takes a really, really long time. Well, I, I want to say it takes him a week to at least get to a point where he's starting to speak to people.
2: That long, huh?
3: That long. Hmm. So he wakes up in a bed. And he finds himself in the uh, care of a caretaker named Lyra-Ah. Unbeknownst to everybody at PAX, Lyra-Ah is a Tyranian spy. Who is sent, presumably, to expose the true nature of PAX. Now, how do we know she's a spy? Because she takes her top off and we see two belly buttons. Okay. Two belly buttons. So, Two belly buttons. So she takes him up to the surface where we see we see a world that is healing, actually. You know what we always say? The world is healing. Yeah. Yeah. We see a greenery where we wouldn't think there would be greenery. And we see a river. Where we wouldn't think that there'd be a river. Because remember, this is in the middle, presumably in the middle of New Mexico. We see a sprawling river, a sprawling greenery, animals, and off in the distance, a city. Crazy, huh? And Dylan Hunt is just in awe of all of this. Another thing Dylan Hunt is in awe of is a network of subterranean sub shuttles. Think of subways only incredibly quick.
2: So incredibly fast subways.
3: Yeah, and this is one of the uh, sort of last remnants of the world of 1979 that's kind of sort of being used by uh, everybody in this area, either for transport, or miscellanea. God help us if we ever find out what the miscellanea is. Actually, we have a pretty good idea of what the miscellanea is because uh, one of the Terranian societies, they decide to use that sort of sub-shuttle station as a network for nuclear power, which apparently they want to use for either power or weapons. Nobody says right now. I mean, the the people at PAX, they decide if they have nuclear weapons, they can start another war at least as big as the Great Conflict. Which, I don't know if you know this, would be very bad. Yes. But once Dylan comes to He also takes note of everything going on in his surroundings, like uh, kids in a classroom singing, artwork from his time, the power to grow sunflowers underground. And it turns out that the people at PAX are actually descendants of the personnel at NASA who worked and lived in the Carlsbad installation. They're explorers, they're scientists, they preserve what little information and technology survived from before the conflict, and they want to learn as much as they can about the world before the conflict. Hopefully in an attempt to build a new civilization from the wreckage of the old. By the way, uh, the sub-shuttles, they are nuclear-powered, but uh, they actually are mag you know what a maglev is, right? What's a maglev? It's a magnetic levitation rail system. Okay. And they can go pretty darn fast. Something that is not lost on the Turanians. By the way, we mentioned the Terranians, but we didn't go into what exactly they are. I mean, we talked about them being a band of mutants. But what we didn't talk about is... How much bastards they can be. I mean, we're talking totalitarian regime who like to enslave humans for fun. And their leader discovers that Hunt has knowledge of nuclear power systems from his time. So he dispatches anyone who is able to capture Hunt and bring him to the surface. Of course, all of this is under the guise of friendship and mutually assured working environments. And presumably sex with Lyra Ah. I don't know. I don't know how these guys' minds work. Of course, the folks at PAX, they don't trust Lyra Ah, and they make a plan to abandon her as soon as Dylan Hunt is able to work, and move freely on his own. Which makes sense, I mean, she's a mutant. And this is a highly regimented society. Think Hunger Games, only a lot less murder. And interestingly enough, the Paxes, for lack of a better word, the Paxes, they're going to assign a new nurse to watch out for Dylan. Presumably, one of their own. Yeah. Lyra uh, has a problem with that. So, oh. she incapacitates the Nooners and takes Dylan out of there. Presumably to the uh, Tyranian city. In the middle of the night, mind you. Because, well, reasons.
2: Yes, reasons.
3: And, of course, they want to use the maglevs to get back to the surface when somebody just shot a trike dart inside Dylan Hunt. Uh-oh. 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 And Dylan comes to. he's inside one of the sub-shuttles and is headed toward, deep inside, the packs that nobody likes to show you, which looks like a slum, actually. We have a bunch of people in various states of raggedy dress huddled around fires and eating whatever animals they can find. And apparently, it's the ruins of a city that was once on the surface, no longer, obviously. Think Act Three of Futurama's Space Pilot 3000. So, Lyra, A ah, and Dylan travel by horseback, notice all the animals that are still on the surface, at least from our time, and make their way to the city. And this is just, if you could imagine, this is before the time of CG. So you have a matte painting, and that is just the most beautiful futuristic city that you've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Just, Way better than whatever they would use
2: for CG today on a TV. Well,
3: not necessarily. I mean, I, there's here I go referencing the Hunger Games again. Have you seen the Capitol and the Hunger Games? It looks like that, only it's shot on the campus of UC Irvine, because, well... Oh, yeah,
2: Well, yeah, but you can never do Hunger Games-style stuff with television. True. Unless you're, like, a streaming service or something.
3: Yeah, but it would be too expensive if nobody watches. You're cancelled. Is it that right, Cowboy Bebop? By the way, that's also on the list. So, they make it to the city and we see people who have ventured from outside the city wanting entrance into the city. Because, you know, movement is regimented in 2133 for some reason. I mean, they'll only take so many people. Because Every day is a struggle for resources, right? And of course, this is a big, beautiful city, and they want to put their best foot forward. Yeah, nobody's mentioned anything about humans kneeling every time a Tyranian walks past, or the fact that there's another human on a leash, or nobody mentions it. I know Dylan just looks around and doesn't really know what to say about this sort of thing. He's like, eh. It's like, well, this is kind of strange. I mean, does this always happen? I guess. So, Lyra leads Dylan to a chamber where I imagine, I have no idea what they're about to do, but Okay, I think I can guess what she is about to do. She has a stem in her hand, and apparently it grants dignity to I don't know somebody, but the human slaves lead Dylan to his quarters while Lyra ah reports to her superiors about Dylan Hunt's knowledge his Circumstances and what they could do for the Terradians. They want him here now so they can, you know, do whatever they do with their nuclear power. Probably fix it so that it becomes more powerful. Hopefully, no weapons come of it. But knowing these guys, it's probably all but certain that they want to be starting something. Meanwhile, while uh, Dylan is grooming himself, he's talking to some of the humans, asking them, do they really like it here? Because it seems like you guys are treated like, well, um, dirt. But apparently they are more than happy to serve, which is kind of sort of weird, if you think about it. So Dylan talks about his life, before his accident, and also his knowledge. And he can't help but notice that all of the humans are just bending over backwards to make Lyra Lyra'a, uh, and by extension Dylan, happy. And Lyra Lyra'a uh, basically says, oh, all of this, this is normal. These people, they're like pets to us. They're fortunate humans, and they recognize it. And Dylan just like, I don't know if they recognize it that much. This all just seems weird. So Dylan goes off and does a bit of uh, sleuthing, let's say, while Ah uh, is sleeping. He makes an escape. He looks for any human who will say anything about anything. And while he's looking for any human, the humans are actually, above ground, looking for him. And a team from the uh, Terranian Elders, they find him first, and they want to bring him to the High Elders so they can get to work on their nuclear reactors, so they can have more power. And they try and use the uh, a group of humans, as it were, to sort of persuade them to work for the Turanians in developing their civilization. And if he won't do it willfully, let's just say they have ways of making him submit. Remember that stem we talked about earlier? It could be used for pleasure, it could also be used. For pain. A lot of pain. So much pain. Eight levels of pain. Pain that Dylan has not yet fathomed. Even on the lightest setting. The one thing that the uh, Atranians did not count on... Dylan deciding he wanted to fight. That does not end well. So, unfortunately, Dylan is captured. He takes his role as one of the helpers. And one of the helpers that shows him around the place is Isaiah, played by Ted Cassidy. And he's going to become very uh, instrumental in his survival, let's just say. And by survival, I mean rising up and overcoming their captors. So he grabs a subset of slaves as well as people who have been captured, searching for Dylan, and tries to lead a revolt, only to find another guy with a stem. So... He won't submit, so he's going to get tortured. Unless somebody can free him. Oh! Somebody just freed him. So we have ourselves a good old-fashioned slave uprising. Not only that, folks at PAX have found Dylan Hunt, and they're ready to take him back to PAX. But Dylan wants to stick around and give the Trenians a taste of his own medicine. You know, with the uh, whole wacky sticks. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the folks at PAX, remember, they have sworn an oath against any and all types of aggression. So they have to find another way to get Dylan back underground. All this while uh-oh, there is looking for him. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So using his knowledge, Dylan manages to rig, are you ready for this? Okay. An explosive attached to a nuclear reactor. He's going to blow this city up real good before they have a chance to arm themselves and basically reenact the great conflict. He sabotages the nuclear device and destroys the reactor and presumably the entire city. So he has destroyed the entire city. Yep. So he's basically a murderer. Oh, no. He's not a murderer. He's a mass murderer. Oh my god.
2: Alex Cord is a mass murderer.
3: And the thing of it is, he's all the way back at PAX It's the middle of the night, and everybody is attracted to a, let's just say, a new light in the sky, because I don't know if you know this, but if you've ever seen a nuclear reactor explode, it glows pretty. Ooh. And it also creates um, a shockwave, so there's like 30 seconds of wind. So, gigantic explosion, shock waves. kids are at the surface experiencing 30 seconds of a gigantic wind gust. I don't think they've ever experienced the wind, so imagine how scared they are. And Yulof and the rest of the Primuses, particularly Ulof, they ask, Did you take a light? And Dylan said, Well, I kind of, sort of, had to. I mean, they had weapons and everything. They're about to start war. The PAX leaders once again reiterate their pacifist nature. They have taken an oath against any and all forms of conflict. We are trying to rebuild an idealistic society free from hatred, free from war, and using all that is only good and just from the world's past. Your interference, however well-intentioned, is antithetical. We cannot, in good conscience, keep you here. However, we value your knowledge of your past, and we see your capacity for good. We want you to join PAX permanently, but only if you agree never to take another human life again. We will kill you. Well, we won't kill you, but we will kick you out of here and leave you to die in the surface if you take another human life. They don't say all of this, but it's implied. And Hunt was like, okay. I'll do it. But you can tell that he was very half-hearted in his agreement. And you love states the rationale for taking lives to justify saving lives was what allowed the Great Conflict to happen in the first place. And that's the first pilot. And that's the first pilot. And that basically laid frame to the story of Genesis 2 and Dylan Hunt in the year 2133. It sounds a lot like Buck Rogers without any flying or ray guns, doesn't it? Pretty much. Well, it aired on March 23rd on CBS. And while it was in development at CBS... Roddenberry was writing up a full 20-episode season treatment. But presumably after the airing, CBS took one look and said, Pass. You know what they opted for instead? what they opt for? The series version of Planet of the Apes.
2: Yeah, I kind of figured they would.
3: And I could tell you right now what was airing in that time slot against Genesis 2 because TV Tango is wonderful. We have on NBC Ghost Story and The Bobby Darren Show. But on ABC, oh boy. It was up against The Odd Couple.
2: Yeah, that explains it.
3: Yeah, and a story as sort of disjointed because I said this was a slog and it was a disjointed sort of thing to watch. I watched all 70 minutes of the movie. If you want to watch it on YouTube, it's there, but uh, get yourself something to drink. Otherwise, it's going to seem like forever. And I guess that's what the problem was with Genesis 2, because the folks at CBS were looking at it, and they were like, where is the action? Where is the, I mean, there's the story, but where's the action? There's no there there, I guess you could say. Roddenberry took the words to heart and started treatment on a second sort of take on this format called Planet Earth. So let's go over the cast in the second pilot. Alright. What they couldn't get was Alex Cord to play Dylan Hunt. Instead, they got John Saxon.
2: And we've talked about John Saxon plenty of times here on this podcast.
3: We have, you know.
2: Because Mike, he was on the final week of F.E.W.
0: Among other things, yeah.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. but you'd also and know And that's him. sort of like a
0: footnote to history, but yeah.
2: That is a footnote, but you'd also know him as the uh, the f- dad to Hever langenkamps character in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. That's what he's best known for. And he was in Americana, Mike.
3: Americana?
2: He was in Donus America. I got his autographed cord
3: from Americana. I think I showed you that a while. Oh, oh, I
0: thought you said, I thought you were talking about a TV
3: show called Americana. It's like, there is a TV show called Americana, but we're not talking about that.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. You, you, you showed us that card in the past. Yes.
3: Yeah. He was also in an episode of Half Nelson in 1985.
2: What the hell is Half Nelson?
1: It's
3: on a um, list. What? Half Nelson. Rod Taylor as a cop who got a job as a private security service for the rich and famous while trying to make it as an actor. Okay. And also, I
0: think it had uh, Joe
3: Pesci on it. Yeah. Joe it Pesci did... was the half Nelson. And I know that's on the list,
0: so we don't even have to add
3: that. Oh, totally. Okay. Good. But reprising his role as Isaiah was Ted Cassidy. Right. And reprising her role as Harper Smythe was Janet Margolin. I don't believe we talked about her bit role, which was expanded in Planet Earth. And uh, by the way, Janet Margolin, what was she? What wasn't she? And holy cow, she was a that woman from that thing. I think the the longest thing she's ever done was five episodes of Lanigan's Rabbi for the NBC mystery movie. Okay.
2: Okay but guys playing the character of Morg
3: oh boy (laughs) oh no get ready guys ready the clip guys (laughs) Diana Polar oh no (laughs) Dr. Pulaski herself Rosalind oh my god (laughs) I really don't want to talk about it
1: Oh
0: my god! How many times have I told you not to go down that elevator shaft?
3: No, don't go down the elevator shaft. And of course, we have uh, recasts of <laughs> Uloth and Kimbridge. Rye Tasco, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page, plays Kimbridge, while Euloth is played by Batchel Parents because yeah, duh, because reasons. This was supposed to be one of the episodes of Genesis 2 that Gene Roddenberry was typing out while the movie was in development, which explains why everything seems to be already firmly established. Dylan Hunt is a member of PAX Team 21, and the objective of PAX is to spread knowledge of the world before the Great Conflict all throughout the world. However, they face opposition from a group of militaristic mutants known as the Krieg, which is a lot more threatening, if you ask me, than the Terranians. In fact, in one clip, there is one clip for free online, it shows the Krieg trying to attack PAX Team 21 using a truck. A 79 pickup, to be precise. It's very deliverancy, I should say. Once they manage to escape attack, they escape in a hyperloop subsurface shuttle, using footage and props borrowed from Genesis 2, of course. Which, they said, was built during the early 1990s before the final conflict. Kimbridge is severely wounded and to save his life, he requires, and now I'm quoting from Wikipedia, a bioplastic prosthesis to repair the damaged pulmonary arteries sheared away by a Creek rifle shot. All of this, by the way, in 2022, is now a commonplace. Bioplastic prostheses, uh, bioplastic arteries, both of them used to save lives. PAX Team 21, with Dylan Hunt, Baylock played by Christopher Carey, Isaiah, played by Ted Cassidy, and Harper Smythe, played by Janet Margolin, tries to locate a missing doctor, Jonathan Connor played by Jim Antonio, the only surgeon who can perform the delicate surgery in time. Which leads them to the Confederacy of Root, a society of latter-day Amazons, where the women rule the world and the men are enslaved. Does this look like anything? What exactly? It looks like the plot of Genesis 2, only you replace the mutants with Amazons. Oh, okay. Harper Smythe binds Hunt and enters the Confederacy's territory with him as her pet? Slave? Slave? Property? Once she's in the Confederacy, she meets Marg, who is the leader of the women who claims Dylan as her own. So we basically have two women claiming the right of prima nocta with Dylan Hunt. Harper Smythe makes her way to a nearby farm and meets a woman who explains how the society operates and why there are fewer and fewer children. Meanwhile, Dylan learns that the men, who are referred by the Confederacy of Ruth as Dinks, are subjugated by a drug in their food. That kind of reminds me of the plot of something, but I don't remember what. I'm sure it'll come to me. Anyway, despite his efforts, he succumbs to the effects of that drug, and Harper's mind arrives at the village to reclaim Dylan as her property by challenging Marg to a battle royale. When Harper Smythe is unable to find Connor in the village, Marg invites her to see Marg's newcomer Dinks Meanwhile, Connor comes forward with the antidote to the drug. Hunt recovers, and Connor Hunt, and Harper Smythe decide they should swap Hunt for Connor, allowing the Doctor to return to PAX. Marg agrees to the exchange and Connor and Harper Smythe leave for PAX after first distributing the antidote in the Dink's food supply. So, they got the doctor, he's on his way to PAX. Presumably, Cambridge is going to make a full recovery. Presumably. It's never explained. Meanwhile, free from the influence of the drug, Hunt goes full Captain Kirk. And seduces Marg. Ooh! The! <laughs> in the morning, the small party of Krieg arrive and demand the secret to making men compliant. Hunt leads the undrugged men in overpowering the mutant invaders, who, by the way, aren't as strong or as fast or as smart as the previous mutants. No, anyone who drives a 79 pickup can't be that smart. No, they learn the men in the other households were equally successful in fending off the Krieg, and as a result, the women's council decides to suspend the drug treatment program on their males, making them, I guess, you would call them the equivalent of women in the 70s. Yeah, because I remember, get- this is a society where women rule and men drool.
2: So this is like a commentary on women's lib.
3: Yes. This is Gene Roddenberry at his finest. He's using the outer limits of human imagination to address the social ills of the time period. That's good. Oh, it's very good. ABC, rather than CBS aired this pilot, and uh, I don't believe it went anywhere, because it was on April 23rd, 1974, right?
2: Yeah. What would it have aired against?
0: I got this one, guys. This aired against, on NBC, a mystery movie called The Snoop Sisters, and on CBS, it went up against an episode of Hawaii 5 and... A half-hour
3: episode of something called Theater. It did air out of a new episode of Happy Days.
2: Okay, so it got a good lead-in, at least.
3: So it got a good lead-in, but for one reason or another, probably because it was such an expensive project to shoot, ABC declined to pick it up for a series.
2: Yeah, But they did air a third pilot on ABC on July 13th, 1975, called Strange New World, which kind of had some of the same ideas in it, but it had John Saxon playing a completely different character and involved a trio of astronauts returning to Earth after 180 years in suspended animation.
3: Yeah. And nowadays, you cannot compare either of the two pilots without comparing it to Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. Yeah, basically. Yeah, because Saxon's version of Dylan Hunt was a lot closer to Captain Kirk instead of Alex Kord's character. And according to an article here from Jeff Bond of TrekMovie.com, he says that... John Saxon and William Shatner shared the same physical beauty and charming arrogance compared to the dark brooding star of Genesis 2, Saxon's fighting skills were also complementary. You have to love Saxon delivering a full-on Captain Kirk dropkick to a Krieg. Meanwhile, Janet Margolin has also been compared favorably to some of the female characters, including Yeoman Colt, who I believe we recently lost, you know, in Colt. She was the last surviving member of the cast of The Cage.
2: Oh, the original pilot from '66.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get the actress's name here. Laurel Goodwin. Laurel Goodwin, unfortunately, passed away uh, last week or a couple weeks ago at the age of 79. Oh, okay. And also complimentary. Believe it or not, Janet Margolin's fighting skills against Diana Moldar.
2: Oh, yeah. But you know what would help with the fighting skills? There was an elevator shaft. Oh, for the
3: love of God, Craig. Yeah, I have a quote here from Jeff Bond. He says, Along with Moldar, Margolin's fighting skills were also noted by critics as the sight of two barefoot women One a fair blue-eyed blonde and the other an olive-skinned dark-eyed brunette fighting each other while wearing halter-tops and slit skirts barely covering their bikini briefs was difficult to ignore. Mark Daniels, who is an American television director, brings professional polish and brisk pacing to the telefilm and the action sequences are very nicely staged. Aside from the encounters with the Krieg, there's a very well-done catfight between Moldar and Mark where it's clear that the two actresses are doing much of the stunt work themselves. And then there's uh, a scene that mirrors a similar scene in Genesis 2, in which a shockwave from a nuclear explosion Hunt has triggered strikes a pack's lookout, just as a mother has brought her young children out to see the stars. There, and in the Planet Earth scene, the heroes witness the effect of their own violence on children, forcing them to rethink the use of Force, a very effective and intelligent pacifistic touch from Roddenberry. He is known for doing that sort of thing. I mean, some of the uh, themes and instances and plot lines and names were recycled one more time for, of course, the third movie that we're not going to talk about, Strange New World, but also as recently as the late 90s and early 2000s with Gene Roddenberry's first posthumous works, Andromeda, whose captain is named Dylan Hunt, and Earth Final Conflict, which basically takes all of the uh, themes of Star Trek and brings them into our backyard. By the way, Andromeda and Earth Final Conflict they're filed under the never covers.
2: Oh, no. They were, like, long running. Is they it, were uh, long
3: running, and they were brilliantly done. Isn't
2: Andromeda on Pluto?
3: I believe it is.
2: It's on Pluto TV. Okay. So you could watch Andromeda, to your heart's content, on Pluto TV. Along with Star Trek, because there is a Star Trek channel on Pluto TV. Yes, because it is. Because it's owned by... Well, it's not... It's not Viacom CVS anymore. Is it now like. It's Paramount. Just Paramount now. It's Paramount. Ring's better. Yeah, might as well go with the name of the studio.
3: Yep. But if you want to see uh, Earth Vital Conflict, your only hope is to find the DVDs. Your only hope is to find the DVDs. And even in Region 1, they're pretty hard to come by. I mean, they released Season 1 in 2009. And then they released Season 2 in 2010. But for some reason, they didn't release that before Seasons 3, 4, and 5, which were released in 2003.
2: But if you want to watch these two pilots, they are available on Blu-ray from Warner Archive.
3: Yes, the manufactured order.
2: Yes, and you get them on Amazon. But I did get mine, like... Before they switched the Warner Archive store to Amazon, because the original old web store would have like four for $44 sales, like during the pandemic and stuff. So I bought a bunch of stuff from Warner Archive during the start of the pandemic, like two years ago, and that was one of them.
3: Nice. So there you go. We have two movies one either a remake or a sequel of the other, and both telling the stories of the early to mid-1970s using the cover of time travel. Albeit accidental time travel, but still time travel. But Genesis 2 and Planet Earth, in 1973 and 1974 respectively, they were things on TV. But you don't have to go too far out of your way either in time or space to get more stories like this at itwasathingontv.com Of course, we have our previous 249 episodes, our live shows, our mini minisodes, of course, links to all of our social feeds at itwasathingontv or on the Facebook Thank you, Zuckerberg, at It was a thing on TV podcast. And if I could just speak, of course, I'm going to let uh, Mike and Greg say what they want to say, but I just want to take a moment to thank all of you out there for allowing us to have 250 episodes. I mean, this is like every one of these episodes told a crazy story. And we appreciate you sharing these crazy stories with us i mean this was just this is just a really good time i love doing this show every week right no i don't like doing this show of course i like doing this show (laughs) what the hell does that mean i just wanted to say something to commemorate the moment i guess i don't
2: I can't believe we've been doing this crap for 250 episodes. I thought we were going to be done after 13 weeks,
0: and I'm still doing this goddamn
2: podcast.
0: (laughs) Hey, there's no 13 weeks here, bub. I paid for a full year at a time, so you are guaranteed you're locked in here for a full year, 13
3: weeks. Read the contract next time. This just got really meta, guys. And speaking of meta, our next pilot is about as meta as they come. We have a guy who uses television as an escape and as a framing device. And Eddie Murphy's involved? And Eddie Murphy's involved?
0: Eddie Murphy's involved quite a bit in this, actually. Yes. Yep.
2: But I'll tell you this. This pilot, it couldn't lose, but it did.
3: Uh, yeah. But hey, well, it made for a pretty interesting thing on TV, which we'll talk about next time, right here on It Was a Thing on TV. For Mike, for Greg, I'm Chico. Thank you for listening. Please be kind to each other, and we will see you for the next one. Wow! Attention universe! Be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode of Earth! The Asians are really stewed at the Russians, the zebras try to get along with the buffalo, and Americans and Iraqis have an all-out brawl. It's outrageous fun and it's all new! Earth on Fagnu.